Hello and welcome to the latest Funds Fan podcast. I'm Kyle Caldwell, Collectives Editor at Interactive Investor. For this episode, I'm joined by Andy Pitts, now an independent consultant for Interactive Investor, but in a former life, edited Money Observer magazine for nearly two decades up until 2015. Later, both myself and Andy will be putting questions to Joe Curtis, manager of the City of London Investment Trust, which is one of Interactive Investor's Super 60 fund choices. Then, at the end of the podcast, Theodore Diloff, fund analyst at Interactive Investor, will name his fund of the week from the Super 60 list of investments. As ever, we start off with the latest fund news and developments. Andy, the first item I wanted to discuss with you is ESG funds those that invest with environmental, social, and governance principles in mind, these funds have never been more popular with investors, according to a couple of recent studies that we have covered on the Interactive Investor News Hub. Andy, why is it that you think investors have changed their perception on funds that invest in a socially responsible fashion? It would be nice to think that actually investors at large have suddenly started investing for profit with principles. And that is certainly the case in many instances. But the real reason I suspect is that performance of such funds has just generally been much stronger than funds that don't adopt ESG principles. And that just obviously brings them more to the fore in terms of investors' attention. You know, the performance numbers look pretty good. And of course, the other main reason that they have performed particularly well is they tend to invest in areas of the markets that have been driving returns. So technology in particular for several years now, and particularly in the US. And, you know, areas such as healthcare and also financial stocks as well, and particularly fintech stocks. Obviously, they also tend to avoid areas of the market that recently have been very poor. So that means oil and exploration and mining, and all of those areas have been particularly badly hit by lack of demand in the um, the pandemic. For me, what's quite interesting at the moment is to try for those investors who are really interested in investing for profit with principles is what kind of ESG principles they want. I think it's fair to say that an increasing number of funds go through an ESG process when investing, but a lot of them could still be investing in a mining company, for example. You'll see plenty of instances where where miners or oil and exploration companies do appear in some ESG portfolios. So that's one of the reasons that Interactive Investor has tried to help investors make those kind of ethical decisions with its ACE 30 list of ethical and socially responsible funds. The A in ACE stands for funds that avoid certain types of companies and sectors. C for funds that consider a number of ESG and ethical issues when balancing positive and negative factors. And E is for embraces. So that's funds that uh, aim to deliver a positive environmental or social outcome. More than half of our ACE 30 choices are in the first quartile of their wider funds peer group over a year. And that's in areas as well, such as UK equity income, where funds such as Trojan Ethical Income, for example, have performed exceptionally well and delivered a positive return uh, over the year, for example. 
whereas the vast majority of UK income funds are, are, are deeply in negative territory. In terms of fund management houses that um, have a expertise in ESG, one of the reports that was covered recently by Interactive Investor was the um, Prism report, and it highlighted that three fund groups in particular that have uh, benefited from increased investor appetite for ESG funds have been Royal London, Lion Trust and Bailey Gifford. Andy, I'm guessing you're probably not surprised to see these three firms are in favour with investors looking for ESG fund options. Well, yes, certainly Bailey Gifford has very much a sort of quality growth remit, if you like, across all of its fund offerings and or at least a quality growth or a future growth remit. Bailey Gifford does actually offer some socially responsible ESG funds as well, such as its very popular Bailey Gifford Positive Change Fund, and also its fund focusing on global equity income, which is the responsible global equity income fund, which has been performing very well. But with Royal London and Lion Trust, these groups have a very long pedigree, if you like, in managing sustainable and socially responsible funds. And they both have extensive ranges. For example, Royal London offers a pure UK equity fund, which is uh, its Royal London Sustainable Leaders, which is amongst top performers over all periods that you would care to mention. But they're also particularly strong in mixed asset funds as well. So those which are offering various degrees of exposure to bonds and equities primarily. But it's also important not to forget that there are other groups which also have a, a long history of running SRI funds, such as BMO. It runs a range of funds that used to be called the stewardship range of funds when they were managed by a company called Friends Provident back in 1984. That then became foreign and colonial, uh, which then became FNC, which is now BMO. And so that range of funds has also done particularly well. Moving on from ESG funds being flavour of the month, the next news item concerns a fund sector that is proving very unpopular at the moment, UK funds. The latest sales figures from the Investment Association show that more than £1 billion exited UK funds in June, with £622 million um, of investor withdrawals from the UK oil companies sector and £327 million withdrawn from the UK equity income sector. There are a number of reasons why investors are shying away. The uh, dividend drought and Brexit uncertainty seem the two most obvious to me. What's your view, Andy? Does it make sense to you that retail investors are deserting their home market at the moment? And, and looking ahead, what do you think could be the catalysts for them to return? Well, I agree that certainly the Brexit uncertainty, the, what have to be admitted as fairly dreadful errors in the government's response to pandemic and the general collapse in dividends in the UK have all been really painful and don't instill a great deal of confidence for investors and particularly overseas investors thinking about the UK. And also, let's not also forget the huge drop in economic activity followed on from the lockdown. But let's also put in a couple of mitigating factors in here. It's important to remember that the UK doesn't have much in the way of big tech stocks that have been driving overseas markets, particularly in the US and China. And our index of FTSE 100 companies is still dominated by oil and gas by mining and by an under pressure finance sector. And there are some, you know, some bright spots in there, such as pharmaceuticals, which have done well. But 
as we look forward, I think it's important to think about what happens at the end of the year. Ending the Brexit uncertainty, which we're still going through at the moment in terms of the transition deals and trade deals that we do with the EU and other partners are going to be crucial to the prospects of the UK economy and to a very large extent the UK stock market. But it's also important to bear in mind that the generally weak pound has boosted returns that investors have derived from overseas. So if you look at the S&P 500 index in the US, for example, I did some figures uh, which showed that over five years, the return for a US-based investor is 73%, but for a UK-based investor in sterling, it's 105%. Now, we have to think about, is sterling going to be this week forever? I think ending Brexit uncertainty will be something which helps sterling recover. It's also important to remember that it makes sense to have a decent amount of your portfolio invested in your home market, if only to avoid you know, a nasty currency shock. So for example, if the pound suddenly surges against overseas currencies, that's going to make those very buoyant overseas returns that we've been enjoying over the last five years or so look much less buoyant. And there's plenty of great funds to choose from, including City of London, who, who will come on to next uh, for equity income seekers. And we've got a number of really good performing funds in the Super 60s, such as Royal London Sustainable Leaders, Lion Trust Special Situations, CFB SDL, UK Buffetology General, and other funds such as Marlborough Multicap Growth have also done very well. And I'd also just finish off by adding that don't forget the potential of smaller companies in particular. When things are looking at their darkest, it's often one of the best times to invest in UK smaller companies in particular. Thank you, Andy. We are now moving on to the next part of the podcast in which myself and Andy are joined by Joe Curtis, manager of the City of London Investment Trust. Joe, thank you for your time today. Very pleased to be with you. To start off with, could you summarise 2020 so far? It has been a tricky year for investors to navigate, particularly for managers with an income focus, such as yourself in managing the City of London Investment Trust. Yes, well, it's been a very dramatic year. I mean, it really was a different world we were in on 1st of January, and we just had the decisive general election results and um, things look fair for the UK economy. But as we know, COVID-19 spread across the globe, ultimately causing our economy to be locked down with you know massive um, impact on, on our economy and other economies across the world. So the stock market, though, having taken a big fall, has recovered from about the third week of March and has actually um, recovered a lot of its losses. Uh, there have been quite a few dividend cuts. I mean, the uh, height of the crisis in kind of March was just at the time when UK companies with December calendar year ends announced their dividends. And uh, given the uncertainty, there were a lot of cancellations and emissions at that time. But actually, since um, the recent results season in end of July, August, um, they've actually quite, quite a few companies have restored their dividends. So there's a much better tone to it, um, I would say now. I was just thinking that if some forecasts are correct, it looks like that um, UK dividends might not reach uh, 2019 levels until around 2022. So what sort of pressure is that going to place on the trust's income reserves if it's going to maintain its dividend growth record? Well, I think it's difficult to know exactly you know, be, be too sure about the path of dividends. I mean, I think there's been a massive reset uh, and this has included companies which were probably over-distributing dividends like Roll Duck Shell, which 
got a very big part of the index and they cut by two thirds. I think it's very difficult. I mean, you can point different scenarios depending on partly how, how we recover from the pandemic. But certainly investment trusts have a huge advantage in that um, they're allowed, they can build up in the good years, as we've done at City London, a revenue reserve, and they can use that um, to support dividend growth um, in um, more difficult years for dividends. And it's like saving for rainy day. And if ever it's the rainy day, it is now. And um, our board have announced um, that we have those revenue reserves and we're likely to use them this year. And in addition, they've also pointed out, which investment trusts also have, we've got distributable capital reserves, which are significantly bigger than our revenue reserves. And they're based on the profits made, realised from investments over the years. And so, you know, investment trusts are in a, a very strong position uh, as a city of London to keep the dividend growth going. Yeah, that's quite reassuring. But given that it seems that many companies are talking about the need to reset their dividends, including Royal Dutch Shell, as you said, uh, to more sustainable, but ultimately going to be lower levels. Have you had to consider making many changes at this stage to the City of London's portfolio? Yeah, we have made some changes. I mean, I mean, certainly one sector we identified as some um, being quite slow to recover travel and leisure, which is kind of hospitality and tourism. And, and so we've, we reduced some um, our quite significantly our waiting in that sector and um, sold companies like Compass, the contract caterer, Whitbread, the hotel group and Cineworld, the cinema operator. We also reduced our exposure to banks, which have been banned from paying dividends uh, by the regulator for in 2020. And, and you know, they, where they're in a much stronger position than, than the financial crisis, you know, they're not, they're certainly leveraged institutions and vulnerable to economic downturns. So we, we sold out of Royal Bank of Scotland, all that West is called now, and produced um, Barclays, Lawrence and HSBC. So we've made changes and we've really reinvested in mainly in um, consumer staples as one key area for us. And also in some situations, there have been overseas stocks, which have um, been better placed than UK ones. And we sold BT, which is not paying a dividend. And we've added to Deutsche Telekom and Orange, and we already own Verizon in quite a big way in the US. And, and then in the oil sector, we reduced Royal Dutch Shell and favoured Total, the French international oil major, which hasn't cut its dividend. Uh, and then in certain sectors, you know, sadly, in food retailing, to my great surprise, Sainsbury didn't pay its dividend, but we were able to switch it into Tesco's and we already hold Morrison's and they're both paying their dividends. So I think it's been quite an active period and I have had to make changes, obviously, given what's happened. I'm interested to know, obviously, given how widespread the dividend cuts have been, whether there have been any examples of stocks in which you anticipated a dividend cut was going to happen or decided to continue holding the stock anyway. BP, for example, was a stock that arguably the market had priced in a dividend cut. And on the day it did cut, the share price moves higher in response to that. We have left our BP holding un untouched. We, we, weren't, we were actually underweight relative to the index in BP, but it is a decent sized holding. And, and I've, as you say, I think once the Royal Dutch Shell cut, I think everyone was anticipating the same would happen to, to BP. And I think on the BP cut by 50% rather than the two thirds of Shell. And so it left them on a on a reasonable yield because the, the price was already discounting the cut in, in dividends. So some of our stocks we've stuck by uh, when they emitted dividends and they've come back to dividend lists. And one thinks BA Systems, Defence Contractor, Direct Line Insurance, and uh, Person and the House Builder are three examples of companies that have come back to the dividend list pretty quickly. So, I mean, I have been some stocks where we sold out ahead of um of a dividend cut and and one in january we sold our holding in aviva i could, can't say 
totally anticipated wouldn't pay its final dividend, but that's one where we um, had concerns about. And TUI, the travel group, we also sold at the beginning of the year ahead of the crisis, and and they, they've not been a they certainly won't be able to pay a dividend going this year given their problems. It's a very difficult environment, obviously, and it's probably a, um, you might not be able to answer this question, but. Um, can you give an idea of what the forecast dividend yield for the year ahead might be for City of London? Um, well, I think that that's a difficult question because obviously the div the yield is a function of of the share price and the asset value of the fund. But um, the, the UK market people are estimating what the true yield of the market is at the moment, and it's probably somewhere between three and a half and four percent uh, is where, where the mark the true yield of the market. But um, but City of London, obviously, we've announced our dividend increase, which is two percent for we're a junior end company, and it, it's been two percent for um for that year. That's been announced as stock market, and and the board's made very clear that with our use of revenue reserves and also the availability of distributed capital reserves, that we the intention is to continue uh, with our fifty four year record of annual dividend increases. Obviously, fifty four years of annual dividend increases. Um, obviously, it's a remarkable long term track record. How much pressure do you feel as the fund manager to keep that run going? I think it's a, a great discipline. I mean, obviously, we're incredibly proud of our record, which is the longest of any investment trust. But I think it's a very good discipline. It um, steers you towards consistent companies. And, um, you know, something's not quite right when a company's not paying a dividend. And it may be a temporary situation, in which case it would be a mistake to, to sell. But, you know, often it's a good signal that actually there's some issues with the company and, and you know, if, it, if you end up redirecting funds towards companies which are capable of, of growing that dividend in a sustained fashion, that's just probably good for long-term returns. I mean, in the, in the long run, we've significantly outperformed the auto index if you go back 10 years and, and beyond. And I think it's a very, in my opinion, it's a very successful strategy and a great discipline, the income one in the long run. Um, there are going to be periods when kind of growth stocks um, are the place to be and we have some in our portfolio but overall i think it's a helpful discipline and it's also something that investors are popular with investors many people you know retired and you know there's so little income available from bank deposit almost nothing and um and bond government bond yields are very low so uh, it is it is hopefully up um, and i believe a strategy that's popular with, with, with investors out there Thank you very much for your time today, Joe. It was really interesting, especially um, finding out the um, portfolio changes you've been making in recent months. For the final part of the podcast, I'm joined by Theodore Diloff, Fund Analyst at Interactive Investor. Theodore, which Super 60 Fund, Investment Trust or ETF have you selected for this episode? Hi, Kyle. My pick for today's edition is Bailey Gifford Chin Nippon Investment Trust, which was one of the top performing strategies on our CP60 list over the second quarter. This trust invests in smaller and disruptive growth companies, which are typical for the New Japan run by young dynamic entrepreneurs willing to take risks. The trust has been run by the highly experienced portfolio manager Pratin Kumar since 2016, who is part of Bailey Gifford's strong Japanese equities team of 10. And what does the trust invest in? The team runs a high conviction portfolio of typically around 45 to 75 stocks with a focus on quality companies believed to have above average prospects for growth. Therefore, it shouldn't be surprising that the trust pays little attention to a particular index and is, is expected to have a very high percentage of active share. In terms of sectors, industrials, information technology and consumer discretionary account for over half of the entire portfolio. 
although the thematic breakdown is much more diversified. A good stock example is the trust's top performing holding, Bango4.com, which operates a website that connects lawyers with individuals and businesses seeking legal advice. This service has become quite popular and approximately a third of Japan's lawyers are now registered members. The company also uh, has a rapidly growing business providing online cloud-based contracts that can be signed securely. And what makes the trust special? We may hear this quite often, but this trust clearly has a well-defined investment process and has been successful in delivering above market returns. Over three years, the trust returned 30% compared to just 0.2% for the MSCI Japan Small Cap Index. And over five years, it delivered 120% against 52% for the index. Currently, the trust is trading at a modest discount of around 1.9%, which is in line with its 12 months average, and it's moderately geared at 8%. And finally, what sort of investors will this trust particularly suit? Due to its unconstrained and concentrated nature, along with its bias towards smaller companies and the ability to use gearing, the trust return profile could be relatively volatile. So therefore, um, this tool makes the trust high risk and it could be best utilized as a satellite holding in a well-diversified portfolio. Thank you, Theodore, and thank you to all of our guests today. We'll be back with the next episode in early September.